Today we are going to look at typicity, which is something that we're used to talking about in the world of wine, but what does it mean when applied to champagne? Typicity can be seen as what is typical for a wine's origins, geography, terroir, varietal type, even viticulture and winemaking. When it comes to learning about wine, but I think particularly champagne, understanding typicity is really important. It's a foundation because it sets a benchmark for what to expect from the main styles of champagne, but then allows us to explore the massive diversity that champagne has to offer from maisons all the way down to growers. I cannot think of anyone more qualified to talk about this concept than my guest today, Marcel Custos, who has built an impressive career as a fine wine and a hospitality consultant, working with some of Australia's best restaurants, including the multi-award-winning Restaurant Botanic. After obtaining a qualification in food engineering and winemaking operations, Marcel started his career as a food product developer before turning his hand to wine. Working as a sommelier while undertaking a master's degree in gastronomy, he went on to complete a PhD in food, wine and emotional pairing at the University of Adelaide in collaboration with Wine Australia and UC Davis. He is the recipient of the ASVO Advanced Wine Assessment Course Scholarship, Wine Communicators Australia Wine Industry Mentoring Program, Vin Italy International Academy Italian Wine Ambassador Scholarship, Sommeliers Australia Education Scholarship and Wine Australia Research Scholarship. He has also been a contributing author in several academic and industry journals and continues to evolve as a wine judge. It was my privilege to interview him for this podcast. Marcel, welcome. How important has understanding this concept of typicity been to you in your career, to developing your personal understanding of wine, but also informing your professional approach to food and wine venues? Thank you for having me. Yeah, look, it's been it's been extremely important. I think you know when you when you look at uh, any wine region, but Champagne in particular, there's a huge diversity within Champagne. We are talking about a reasonably large geographic area as well and because of that there is a lot of information that you need to consider like every single bottle of champagne holds tremendous information i'm not just talking about the the sub-regionality but you know you you also might want to think about might want to consider things like you know what's the assemblage is it is it is it an actual blend is it a blanc de blanc is it a blanc de noir is it champagne from one of the larger houses is it a grower champagne is it a single vineyard champagne what about the dosage what about the disgorgement you know was it fermented in 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 barrels and and sort of handled in a more oxidative style or more sort of like a fresher tighter leaner style more reductive winemaking and the list goes on Uh, we can also talk about metallactic fermentation and what it actually creates so like you know i'm considering all these all these things, all this information, and 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 actually trying to understand how that translates into the glass. Most importantly, that's been very important for for my career, particularly because having pursuing an understanding and having a genuine interest in uh, in champagne and, and 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 what these qualities does to to the wine in the glass really shaped my approach to creating wine lists and, and curating wine lists, and particularly when you have a wine list, you know, anywhere between 50 to 100 champagnes on it, you are dealing with a lot of data. My background is being a wine scientist, so I'm used to handling data and analyzing data. And in that kind of nerdy approach, really, it really was really suitable for, for champagne in particular. So when I first really dived into champagne and, and creating a, an extens- extensive champagne list, 
I had over 100, uh, 100 listings on a wine list mm. that was there. And, and, you know, it was listed kind of in a way that it was kind of sorted by the, the Grand Marks and, and Grower Champagnes. But that was it. So what it really meant for me is that the, the success of the list relied on a sommelier being on a floor, a very knowledgeable sommelier being on the floor and, and hand selling those bottles. But I thought that there might be a better approach to, to translate that, uh, that complexity that's, that's in that list and, uh, and create a list that is a little bit more hospitable, more welcoming for the guests as well. So I started to look into every single bottle. All right, what's the Blanc de Blanc? What's the Blanc de Noir? What's the blend? Which part of Champagne did, did the grapes come from? What about the dosage? What it, was, it a, was it a brute nature? Was it an extra brute? Was it a brute? And the list goes on. So I, I looked into these things and, and essentially sorted or, or organized that, uh, that information and uh, created the list that had uh, this, like I'm a very sort of like structured person. So it had this beautiful structure flowing wonderfully from essentially sub, sub-regional division. And within that, you had your stylistic, stylistic breakdown your blend, Blanc de Blanc, Blanc de Noir, or even a rosé. And on top of that, you also had different uh, sweetness levels. Mm. So if you had a mild interest in, in champagne, you would actually pick a bottle if you wanted a Chardonnay. And if you wanted it from a particular part of champagne with a particular sweetness level, without having to talk to, having to rely on, on, on anyone, which you could argue that it might take out the romance of, uh, <laughs> of, of a restaurant. But I think what it really helped is to remove some of the boundaries of, uh, I guess, anxiousness of, of going into a fine dining restaurant and looking through a very thick wine list and, and feeling completely hopeless and lost until someone walks up to you and actually try to, try to help you. It's one of those things that I always wonder myself as a lover of champagne when I go into a restaurant because everybody's different. And obviously you've taken an approach when you organize your wine list to look at, as you say, a style, and then you might organize it by sweetness level and so on and so forth. Some may take a different approach. I've seen them organized by terroir at times. I've seen them organized by producer. And, you know, coming back to this idea of typicity and really being something that can speak to, I guess, the, the knowledge that a lot of consumers already have about wine. You know, I think it's far easier to access a list of, you know, Blanc de Blanc versus a Blanc de Noir or a blend or a vintage list or something like that, because straight away, you know, a Blanc de Blanc is going to be Chardonnay. And so it's, it's an interesting decision point, I think, for you working in those venues to, to make that decision, you know, and I guess is that something that you find that it's easier for a consumer to navigate? going straight to a style that is as obvious as that as opposed to a famous maison for example or you know a grower yeah look um yeah I, I, this was as, as you said there are more than one ways of of uh, of, of, of approaching uh, a champagne list and uh, like my my approach was that particularly here in australia most wines on the market are labeled by grape variety mm. so i approached it based on based on that kind of. So as you said, most people would know that Blanc de Blanc is Chardonnay. So they, they would have that idea, all right, I would like to start with Chardonnay. Or I might want something perhaps, you know, slightly more generous, more powerful. So I would love to try Blanc de Noir. Mm. And then, you know, you can still have that conversation within, let's say, Blanc de Noir. All right, would you like something more Pinot Noir dominant or, or Pinot Munier dominant? How adventurous are you are you today 
would you like to try this core champagne that is 100% Pinot Mini and it's also a, it's a Brutnatter style, no dosage. It's more, more Venus, more wine-like than the champagne that you might be familiar with, mm. but it's absolutely unique. Only 1,100 bottles were mm. made from a tiny single vineyard. You know what I mean? So we are talking about a completely different experience based on we are still in the in the same field in the same area of, of Blanc de Blanc or Blanc de Noir, but we this way I found that it's actually possible to first of all tell the story of typicity within Champagne, which is extremely diverse, mm. but then also create an absolutely unique experience from from the guest perspective. Yeah, I think too in Australia we're just not familiar with the growing areas in you know in Europe. You know, France particularly is very complex. Champagne has numerous growing areas, and we're just not so familiar with the terroir necessarily associated with that. And so it's much easier, I think, for Australian audiences to identify, as you said, with the varietal aspect and then the main styles, I guess, coming out of Champagne. So Champagne is complex, obviously. We've just touched on all of that. It's a really difficult wine to deconstruct. And um, I would love to have a dollar for every time that somebody has said to me, how do I learn about Champagne? But understanding the three main varietals, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Meunier, is a fundamental starting point before moving on to understanding terroir and how this affects these varietals, how they manifest, but then also the ultimate blend. So in your mind, how does this typicity of those varietals you know, apply to champagne, their sense of place, their style. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like in the context of champagne? Yeah, look, maybe it's a great question. I think maybe let's start with, with Chardonnay because if I, when I choose a, a bottle of champagne, I tend to gravitate towards Blanc de Blanc. And I think Chardonnay just has that uh, purity and, and, and energy that translates very similarly yet very differently across champagne as a region. We're talking about perhaps more citrus and, and more citrus fruits and more, more kind of like green apples. But I would also say that Chardonnay is the variety that picks up some of that like chalky oyster shell, sea spray minerality, think shabli as a comparison. But perhaps also some of those autolysis related uh, characteristics like toast, brioche, a bit of yeastiness, a bit of brininess, and great champagnes that tend to have a lot of freshness, a lot of tension, but at the same time, they can be also quite generous and, and layered as well. Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir perhaps the most red-fruited, red-berried to me with a lovely spiciness, and as it ages, it can pick up some of that mushroomy, more savory notes, not too dissimilar to, let's say, Burgundy and Pinot Noir. And, and here we have a little bit more, more flesh, more body as well, which can be particularly interesting when you're looking for champagne in a fuller style. So kind of, I guess, pushing, pushing, if you're open to push, pushing the boundaries of what champagne could be, I think Pinot Noir and Blanc de Noir in, in particular is, is, is a really good place to start that, that journey. And then Pinot Meunier. Pinot Meunier to me has this very unique herbaceousness, that slight kind of like spicy lift, very often combined with some blood orange or, or like super ripe grapefruit as well. It can make insanely interesting and complex wines, particularly from, from, from growers. And it's one of those varieties that can be used for, you know, grower practices or like responds very, very well to, I guess, unique growers practices like creating a solera in, uh, in champagne or, or, or creating, creating like a more sort of like oxidative style. I think Pinot Noir is not as forgiving with, uh, with, with oxidative handling than, uh, for instance, Meunier can be. 
Mm-hmm. So do you find that these three varietals take on a different character versus where else they're grown in the world? For example, new wine world producing regions. Australia, for example, we make some great Chardonnays here. How do you see these varietals stacking up versus, you know, for example, what we know of Pinot Noir, Meunier, Chardonnay here in Australia? I think there is a there's an element of uh, delicacy for any of these varieties growing in Champagne. And there is, you know, whether it comes from a warmer part of, of Champagne or obviously these days, we unfortunately have to talk about global warming and, and its effect on, on, on wines and particularly Champagne. But, you know, despite of, uh, of uh, warming conditions, Champagne still has to have, still, still tend to have this element of purity, tension, linearity and drive. That particular acid profile that you just can't replicate anywhere in the world. It's more like a to me, it's more like a textural acidity. We can talk about minerality, which to me is more sort of like a combination of of, of acidity combined with a particularly tightly knitted whetstone texture. But you just can't. English sparkling sparkling uh, can come relatively close to it, and I think some some of the best examples from Tasmania as well. But generally speaking, Champagne just does it very uniquely, like like no one else. Hmm. All right. Well, we're going to taste something today, a couple of solid examples just to really demonstrate what we're talking about. I've chosen Louis Roederer's Blanc de Blanc Vintage 2013 and Bollinger's B13. And both of these Maisons, I think, have a a really good established style. And I think for me, when I look at typicity, I need to go back to really great solid examples of styles because that enables us to then go away and build on our journeys and explore the diversity of champagne. But these are beautiful styles and I think they're going to really deliver on consumer expectations every single time that they come out. I'm not going to go into the specifics of each of the Maison because that's not really what the intention of this exercise is about. It's really about just deconstructing what's inside our glasses, tasting through that. So Marcel, do you want to talk us through the first champagne being the Louis Rotor Blanc de Blanc and tell us how you see this as ticking the boxes of what is typical for a Blanc de Blanc style? Uh, Yeah, sure. So the first thing for me is that that exact combination of the almost like a sea spray minerality with citrus fruit. It's more we're talking about for me at least citrus on the riper side, a little bit grapefruit, more lime perhaps, and green apples that might have some yellow apples as well, perhaps slightly going into a white peach as well. Mirroder is known to pick their, their grapes a little later on the riper side to have that uh, extra generosity and, and, and richness. And there's an absolutely wonderful uh, searing acidity that just leads and drives the, the palate and really pulls those generous flavors through the palate and um, and uh, and then yeah just brings everything together into a wonderful finish. That acidity in this case has to do something with a partial malolactic fermentation. So it's more on that kind of like you know green apple acid side, but there's plenty of generosity and almost like pillowy texture on the palate to to nicely balance that and, and just becomes becomes like another Another element that uh, that adds layers and creates a bit more complexity as well. Yeah. I think it's worthwhile noting, you know, we're talking about Grand Cru Côte de Blanc fruit here. So this is purely from Avis and Louis Rota always makes their Blanc de Blanc out of Avis fruit. And you know, we're talking about, you know, this gorgeous sense of almost like salty bubbles that come through to the surface every time. And that's really ultimately what they want you to experience is that chalky, salty, saline mm-hmm. aspect. Also, it's bottled under a lower pressure. 
this one. Mm-hmm. So this is not at the six bars that you would normally experience. I think it's about a bar less. So that's contributing again to that lovely sense of finesse and texture that you would expect to get from an all Chardonnay champagne. And for me, Blanc de Blanc brings the finesse, you know, and I think, you know, historically that's why we've had, you know, Chardonnay blended into champagnes because it does bring that beautiful sense of elegance and finesse and, and lift. So it's uh, for me, it's ticking all of those boxes around, you know, what you expect. It's lighter, even though there's, you know, this is a little bit older now, you know, it was four years on lease thereabouts and um, we've seen a, a few more years post-disgorgement and it's just really relaxed into its own skin. But still, that's not showing any sign of you know, huge amount of aging. There's just a little bit of development there and you're starting to see more of those secondary characters coming through, but a little bit of that sort of candied lemon and toastiness, some sugared almonds and a little bit of cereal quality that's coming through, which I love. And I think some of those things are very classically of these. So I think in so far as you know, experiencing that typicity, you know, it's, it's definitely looking like a Blanc de Blanc, but it's really looking like a Blanc de Blanc from Grand Cru, Cote de Blanc as well, you know, and, uh, because Blanc de Blancs can, of course, come from so many parts in Champagne and they just bring on different aspects of that terroir, but this is just classical and it's really lovely. But this one also partially vinified in oak. So I think, again, it's contributing to that texture about 33% on that one. So really, really, delicious, good, solid benchmark, <laughs> Blanc de Blanc. Yeah, and I think, as, as you pointed out, that Grand Cru status, I think the, the intensity of the fruit on the palate is, is, is undeniable, like mm. just that dialed-up intensity and, and almost like a flashiness that's on the palate. And I think it's worth noting that Chardonnay is one of those grape varieties that uh, handles oak quite well. So even though it has seen partial oak treatment, I don't think it by any ways apparent on the, on the wine. There's the slightest toastiness, vanillary toastiness, or cedary toastiness, but it's really in the background. So I, I would add that to a very high quality, like typical notes of a very high quality Blanc de Blanc as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're now moving on to Bollinger's B13, which I have to say is a real standout for me. It blew my mind when I first tasted it a couple of years ago when it came to market. I was saying to you, Marcel, before that, you know, in the past, I've not been a, a big fan of Blanc de Noir. <laughs> I found them to be a little bit clunky and lacking finesse and elegance in the past, but I think Bollinger do a brilliant Blanc de Noir, and it's so exciting because we're seeing more special releases of Blanc de Noir from the Maison, but the B13 for me stood out, I think, largely on account that it was from such a great vintage. And maybe I should just say a few words about that just to create a little bit of uh, equality between the two champagnes that we're trying today. I made sure that they were both from the 13 vintage. And, you know, this is a, a beautiful classical vintage that I've gone on and on and on about in my writings and also in my presentations. It had a late growing cycle and very cool and late spring, but summer was good and warm with low rainfall. And it's really manifested as one of the last of the great classical vintages in Champagne. October was harvest period, whereas now we're seeing early September. And it's just, you know, we talk about 2008 all the time, but 2013, I've always said to my followers, make sure you invest in this because this is made to age. And and it's such a, a pleasure to have, I think, this Blanc de Noir and a great example of one. So do you maybe want to talk us through what your thoughts are on this one? Absolutely. I think first off that what I would expect, all the red fruits, the red berries, or your like, you know, strawberries, perhaps more leaning towards that 
white uh, strawberry, so a little bit tartar expression of the of mm. the fruit. And I like sort of cherries, cranberries, etc. That's exactly what I I've been looking for in a Blanc de Noir, and it's right there. Some wonderful spiciness as well. Not necessarily sweet spice, more on the savory side, and those like savory mushroomy notes just started to to show themselves. We are talking about a better fermented style here, but and better late style as far as the base wine goes. But again, I think the quality of of, of the grapes really really handles that quite well. And and the the, the, the oaky notes are definitely not the first that that I picked up on. Mm. And here we just have a little bit more roundness, more generosity on the palate. If I had to guess, probably, and knowing that it's a Bollinger, I would guess that it's hundred percent uh, metallic fermentation. The acidity is definitely more more relaxed than in the Röder. And you know, d- despite and and perhaps my previous experience with uh, Blanc de Noirs as well, I I actually do see a lot of uh, finesse here, which is uh, very refreshing and uh, and and very very enjoyable. I think it's just an insanely complex complex, and I would even use the word delicate champagne. Mm. Delicate is not necessarily the word I, I uh, that's part of my dictionary for for Blanc de Noirs, but I think uh, Boringer did a fantastic job here. Yeah, there's elegance. I think for me, it's unusually elegant with the fruit. It's it's the best quality. We're talking mostly Grand Cru, so 92% and 8% Premier Cru. Interestingly, though, I think what contributes to this sense of typicity, if we're going to look at terroir, is that 90, I said, yeah, 92% is Grand Cru, but 52% has come from Verzenay. And that's a really, you know, significant contribution from this terroir. And Verzenay has been historically very important for Boulanger, but also for Champagne. It's one of the original Grand Cru terroir in, in the Appalachian. But what Verzenay does is it is cooler. It, it is north, northeast facing. So that does lend this gorgeous sense of freshness. And I think going forward for Bollinger, you're talking before about climate change. This is going to aid in, you know, producing some very fine champagnes for them because they are able to source significant contribution from Verzenay. 25% is from IE, obviously, the historically based in IE. And then we've got, a, a, you know, small contributions from other areas as well. Avenade Valdor, for example. And so they're adding, I guess, more texture from slightly, you know, warmer climates as well. So that's a really nice contrast, I think, coming through together. This one is, as you said, it's 100% barrel fermented. This is also aged on cork, worthwhile noting. So we we do see that with Bollinger's Prestige Cuvées, seven years on lees, six grams dosage, so relatively small amount of dosage. But, you know, for me, I'm just getting, as you said, all of the savoury character, I think, which is very typical for the Bollinger style coming through. A little bit of the fruit jellies, marzipan character as well, which I really love. But still, you know, it's, it's fresh. And I think for me, the tannin aspect coming through is quite velvety. You know, there's nothing that's too mouth puckering there it's, it's actually very sophisticated mm-hmm. tannin coming through yeah absolutely and i think that tannin aspect can be can be very delicate for blanc de noir in general and i think that's why you know we wouldn't necessarily look for elegance in uh, in blanc de noir just because the, those 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 phenolics the tannins can be you know they they can be either very complementing or sometimes can be distracting as well but i think here it's just the right amount and uh, you can't really see that but I, I found it very interesting what you mentioned about Versailles because i think it almost leads into looking at winemaking decisions as part of typicity because 
what I feel here, particularly here at this Bollinger, is that this this wine is a result of uh, very intentional winemaking decisions that started already in the vineyard, just by you know deciding when to pick, what to pick, and how to utilize that that I guess elevated the acidity and freshness from Versailles, but perhaps slightly leaner, leaner and less powerful fruits by blending it together with with for instance IE, which is definitely more powerful, and 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 so on, and how to you know utilize or how to choose the dosage mm. that. Is complementing, but also creates harmony in, in in the glass. So I'm I'm, I'm very impressed with this, and uh, you know, same goes for for the earlier you mentioned about mm. the lower pressure, which I think was is very much a demonstration of winemaking being part of the disease and how yeah. it can actually enhance. It's a nice foray into that sort of next segment that I was going to talk about because we've spoken about you know the varietals, the terroir, but winemaking, particularly for champagne, because of the uniqueness of the method champenoise. But I mean, having said that, that does get replicated elsewhere in the world, but still, it's famous in the champagne region, and that is you know a typical you know winemaking process is what we expect from champagne. So I guess my next question for you is that method champenoise process what sort of I guess is typical for that versus other sparkling wine production methods. I think perhaps one of the most important characteristics is the the fineness of the bee, the fineness of the of the most the, the the bubbles and of course that has to do a lot with time spent on leaves. So I think the, the Bollinger is a fantastic example of, of, of that refinement with uh, seven seven years spent on the lees. And I think you know that, that might be one of the reasons why Röder only used four years on the lees, but then they went with a lower dosage just to create that kind of just, I wouldn't want to use the word compensate because it's, I don't think it's compensation. It's more about a very smart and, and, and thoughtful thinking. So I think traditional method also comes with a, uh, it's a texture element to me, but it also comes with a particular aromas and flavors. And uh, and because it always, it tends to come with a time spent on the lees, I think it's almost hard to avoid bring up your, you know, brioche, roasted nuts, the yeasty notes, sourdough, etc. Yeah, and uh, and I think, yeah, just like overall, like a, overall more finesse, I would say. Mm, all right. So there's an argument that what we know as being typical for champagne is changing. We did touch on climate change just before, so that's probably the most obvious reason why, you know, some of what we know is most likely going to be changing into the future. And, you know, terroir is affected by climate change, flavours follow. But there's also a lot of independently driven progress by various producers. So they're really pushing the boundaries on what is typical for champagne growers. The grow movement in, in particular has been important for manifesting champagne in very different ways and increasing the diversity. So how do you see this as, as, as affecting what we know of and expect from champagne into the future? Yeah, I think, I think we definitely need to acknowledge global warming and its effect on the grapes and then the champagnes. And, and we also see that different winemakers, partly growers, will, uh, will approach this issue or sometimes they see as, as opportunities to do things slightly different. And, you know, things that I've seen are not dissimilar from things that uh, we see in other regions, such as using uh, different vessels. So going beyond beyond barrels and, and, and stainless tanks, amphoras or, mm-hmm. you know, ceramic eggs, could be something interesting just to create something in between the two most common mediums. I mean, you can create a sort of like oxidation or ox- oxygen perme- permeability between oak and, uh, and stainless steel. 
and and walk that uh, interesting midway. I think another thing that uh, we've been seeing for a while is is uh, is either avoiding meroactive fermentation or using partial meroactive fermentation, which can be very interesting. And another thing that I always find very impressive, especially when it's executed well, is bringing in the the other varieties of champagne. So uh, mm. you know, going beyond the, the the holy trinity of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Sauvignon. <laughs> And there are some fantastic wines that incorporate Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, Petit and Arban as well. And sometimes they are made into a field blend and hence they are single vineyard as well, which may or may not work. And, you know, you can actually zoom out. So you don't necessarily have to go down into the granularity of a single vineyard, but you can actually look into, I guess, either like sub-regional or even regional blends of champagne where you can do things like what we experienced here in the Bollinger B13 that... You've got vineyards that are north-facing and have a slightly higher attitude. They bring the acidity. And you've got vineyards that are more, the slopes are more southerly, more exposed to sun, and they tend to be warmer. So I think it's more about acknowledging that global warming is happening and there's an impact and and, and, and looking into what kind of tools we have in our, our tool set. And I think having access to multiple vineyards with different aspects and has different uh, quality of fruits, different characteristics of fruit, and blending across, I think, can, can create some really interesting champagnes. Yeah, I think we'll see the blends changing definitely and, and very different takes on what we know to be champagne now. We're seeing that more and more, I think, in the non-vintage category. We're seeing some really different changes there and just producers increasingly embracing those warmer, more challenging conditions and working with it as opposed to working against it. So it's just an acceptance, I think, and but just making, as you say, those those key uh, considerations and doing what they can to ensure that you know we, we still have beautiful wines, beautiful champagnes, that are delivering on that champagne expectation every time. Yeah, and uh, and um, you know, just going continuing on this question, I guess you know, warmer growing conditions mean riper food characteristics, mm-hmm. so more sort of like fruit sweetness. So then another way of looking uh, looking at this is that all right, what can we do? What can be done to bring some savoriness to balance that added level of uh, fruit sweetness? Mm-hmm. So we might see champagnes even in the non vintage category that either spend more time on lease, extended time, besides the required twelve months. Or they have perhaps a larger proportion of reserve wine included mm. in bottle in certain certain base years. Well, we've seen that definitely with Louis Rotorou using a significant portion of their reserve wine coming from perpetual reserve in stainless steel. And the idea of being that it's a lot fresher than what they've used previously with the food and for extended periods of time. But it's it's certainly very interesting what we're seeing now. And uh, I wanted to get on to probably a topic that's even closer again to your heart around food and wine before we finish off. We know that your passion is the art of pairing food and wine and you've got a particular sensitivity to this, but also you've got a really acute understanding of the chemistry chemistry that goes on behind all of this. And, you know, for the listeners looking for some basic guidance on what makes a really good pairing with champagne, and particularly if we're looking at it from this sort of basic level of, you know, typicity, Blanc de Noir, Blanc de Blanc, can you talk us through some of the key considerations that you would suggest people make when looking at some of these more typical styles of champagne? Yeah, look, totally. I, as you said, it's, this topic is very close to my heart. I think, you know, one of the most important considerations is that, as you said, we, we need to make distinctions within the champagne category. So you know, I think one of the most popular pairings is champagne and, and oysters. But as surprising as it might sound like, not every champagne works with, with oyster. It's not, yeah. it doesn't necessarily lead to a, 
pleasant pairing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, talking about Blanc de Blanc, and I just mentioned oysters, I think vintage Blanc de Blancs is probably a pretty good place to, to start when it comes to oysters. I think you're just really considering that you, sometimes you're almost better off looking for the right food for a particular bottle rather than the other way around. Because whatever is in the bottle, you can't change it anymore. Mm. But you have freedom to to change what's on the plate. And you know, when it comes to things like oysters, oysters are really very umami, very savory, and they're full of uh, you know amino acids, and that that leads to that that umami sensation and uh, you know, umami taste. And funnily enough, we we do experience a similar umami from the time spent on these. And that's why vintage champagne is a really good starting point because by regulation, vintage champagne must spend at least 36 months on the lease, but most most vintage champagne will spend uh, longer than that. Mm. So we have a lot of savoriness. And in particular, when it comes to you know things like oysters, I, I, I just tend to gravitate towards Chardonnay, I just do find that, you know, that finesse, that, that linearity, that, that minerality that really shines through champagne, uh, Chardonnay, Blanc de Blancs, just a little bit more suitable to, to oysters. I have to jump in there because I had a very interesting experience when I was in Champagne a couple of times ago. I was in a vineyard and I had a Blanc de Noir. It was a Brut Nature and they paired it with these incredible oysters. And I would never normally pair Blanc de Noir with mm -hmm. oysters, but it went so well. And I think for me, I was trying to work out why it was going so beautifully because it did express itself like Pinot Noir, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I think it was that very overt briny character that was coming through in that, you know, Brut Nature style. Also, it came from, you know, very, you know, very chalky, very mineral style of terroir as well. So it was, I think all of those things combined, it was the, the, the saltiness coming through with the minerality, but it was also the dryness coming through with the no dosage and it just made it a beautiful pairing. So it kind of challenged my thinking once again on what I guess is typical, right, mm -hmm. for pairing oysters <laughs> with a yeah. champagne kind. Yeah, and uh, and look, I think you, you pointed out some interesting and, and I would say key key attributes there, and and one is being a brut nature. So we're talking about a more savouriness because you don't have dosage to enhance food sweetness. And the brininess, therefore, shines through more. And what, was it a champagne that perhaps was more influenced by by the lees or was it a non-vintage? It was a non-vintage and it was around three years. Okay. So it was a considerable amount of time on lees. But it was really incredible, actually, a complete uh, non-expected result mm -hmm. for me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, that's the beauty of really, I guess, diving into that uh, information that each mm -hmm. bottle holds. And I would even say that if you have something that uh, has been disgorged a few years ago, then you would have some more savoriness, some more umami coming from that, uh, I guess, gentle bottle maturation as well, which can work quite well with uh, umami-rich foods. Mm. But, you know, when we talk about, I guess, you know, th things like, well, like champagnes like uh, Louis Roeder, it, it, it tends to be a more sort of like delicate, more reductive style. But if we look at the, the other end of the spectrum, more sort of like an oxidative handling, better fermentation, better aging, a little bit more generosity, whether it's Blanc de Noir or, or a blend, that's, that's when we can start thinking about slightly richer foods. And just, you know, thinking about this Bollinger B13 here, I think to me, I, I would definitely looking for something like, like a steak tartare. Mm. And probably I would go with, perhaps I would go with like, you know, salt and vinegar chips just to really leave that, uh, that fruit freshness in the champagne. But we could even dial that up and, uh, and look for perhaps a little bit more barrel influence, a little bit riper fruit, 
a little bit more, I guess, malolactic influence as well. And if we were to look uh, look at something like like a, like a Krug, mm. uh, for instance, even the non-vintage, we might uh, you know start going into a state territory, as surprising as it might sound like. Mm-hmm. But then we can play a, a lot with the actual source that we uh, we we have uh, for uh, with the state. So I actually, you know, I, w- I will be thinking about one of the classics like Bernaysos when you have plain of tarragon and, and the fruitiness of the tarragon would actually really lift the fruit character of the champagne and, and really let it shine and uh, perhaps slightly minimize the, the other complexing elements of the batter and the, and the leaves, which I think could be quite interesting. And, you know, then we could talk about another category that we don't often talk about. What about, about? rosé? Rosé, that's okay. right. That's right. <laughs> So yeah, look, like rosé champagne is not just rosé champagne. We we need to think about at least whether it's a rosé de Sagné or it's a rosé champagne that was made with red wine addition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then then you open like a, a open room for even more opportunities because you know was it like five percent red wine blended into it or was it something like fifteen percent that uh, I just very recently experienced a twenty fifteen Porosier, I think it was, mm-hmm. and it was surprisingly vinous, mm-hmm. which immediately got me thinking of again it's, it's a very sort of like versatile f- with food right absolutely so versatile and uh, and you, you can literally go into that meat category and you know you might be looking for leaner meats like a, a more like a fillet or or or, or duck breast yeah but you do have the opportunity to actually pair champagne with with meat mm-hmm. or if you if you if you look at something like Charles Heisek Brut Reserve we're talking about slightly higher dosage more like a larger portion of reserve wine included, I think often going up to like 60%, although they've been reducing that in recent years. Then I think seafood in particular, like crayfish or scallops, so seafood with a, a sweet tendency mm-hmm. tend to operate quite well. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, all, all the champagnes, higher reserve, higher dosage, they are actually quite rich but also quite versatile as well because mm. that actually gives you a lot of leave it gives a lot of uh, room to absorb additional elements such as different spices herbs etc for grilling and they suit well food like platters with multiple elements such as cheese boards true yeah, yeah, because there's so much to play with 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 a grazing platter, isn't there yeah that's right <laughs> you need something that's quite adaptable <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think Amazon, like Charles Heisek, provides a lot of opportunity because for me, the style has got this incredible ability to bring it through the freshness and so much energy, but at the same time, complexity and richness. And it's this really lovely juxtaposition, I think, in the style, which enables, I think, you to play so confidently with so many food kinds and it's a wonderful champagne. So yeah, thank you, Marcel. That's wonderful detailed insight into everything today. And it's been great to understand things through your very acute lenses. You do apply a very forensic approach to everything that you do. And it's always a joy to listen to people like you just bring different perspectives and a more, I guess, granular perspective to the, the world of, you know, fine wine and in particular champagne, which is not such an easy thing to get our heads around at times. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today and hope to see you soon thank you for having me it was a pleasure to be here and uh, hope to see you soon thank you thank you
Wine and Bubble is a boutique and independent information source dedicated exclusively to telling the real story of champagne. It was launched by me, Sarah Underdown, in November 2018, after almost a decade of working in the champagne industry as a recognised writer, educator and presenter. Wine and Bubble brings together a network of Australian wine journalists, sommeliers, educators and industry representatives as regular contributors. As a team of champagne lovers and communicators, we are thrilled to share our united passion with wine-loving audiences. To read more about champagne, to subscribe to events in Australia and learn more about opportunities to join us for experiences in champagne, visit vineandbubble.com and register your details.